You're listening to Simulcast, a podcast about healthcare simulation. So welcome to a pretty special episode of Simulcast. Uh, today we're going to be listening to my friend and colleague Ben Simon talk about educational theories to change your life. And this is a segment that I asked him to record after hearing him give this talk live at an education session uh, at his own institution. Now, I know we're used to Ben sharing my uh, airtime here on the podcast, on the Journal Club, but I thought by way of introduction and context for this segment, I would just remind our listeners that uh, Ben is a paediatric emergency physician and has a busy clinical practice, as well as leading the Stork simulation program at the Queensland Children's Hospital. And in this segment, it certainly is about educational theory and how it might change your professional or maybe even personal life. But I think there's other lessons in here about the intersections in our professional careers and also also just about the value of being reflective and thoughtful, which Ben has an ongoing influence in many of our lives. So here it is, Ben Simon talking about educational theories to change your life. Hey guys. So one of the most joyful experience of my professional life would have to have been my journey as an educator. And I remember as a trainee sort of watching these role models or uh, people that I really admired in in my department or on courses uh, who were expert educators. And I would marvel at the way they could teach, the way they could wield and mould conversations to become these incredible powerful and sometimes transformative learning experiences. And I hungered for that more than anything uh, uh, before. And with time, I sort of came to learn a few things. One was that I realized that to become an expert educator, I needed more than just being nice or approachable or being a good presenter. I needed to have a good, solid Uh, foundational understanding of educational theory. And with time, that's been a really fun thing to learn about. I've grown so much as a professional educator. But one of the most unexpected but massive impacts that it had on my life was actually how some of those educational theories actually impacted my clinical life and the way that I engage and work with people on the floor. And so today, I just want to give you an overview of three big foundational educational theories and concepts that I think will change your life, because they certainly did for me. And those three concepts are psychological safety, above-the-table negotiation, and cultural compression. And we're going to go through each of those in turn. So let's talk about psychological safety first. So psychological safety as a term was first popularized by Amy Edmondson in a book called Teaming. And in it, she examined and explored a number of organizations, both uh, private business type organizations and also uh, hospitals as well, and looked at the ways that organizations adapted to the unexpected to change or to innovation. And what she essentially found uh, in her sort of central thesis is that uh, underpinning the teams that adapted best to change was this concept of psychological safety, which she defines 
as the belief that within a group or organization, you will not be punished or humiliated for speaking up with ideas, questions, concerns, or mistakes. And this is a really important uh, theory and concept behind simulation education in particular, where we need to get people comfortable enough to take the risk to perform in front of their colleagues, receive feedback, um, and, and potentially receive some critique on how they perform as healthcare professionals. So founding, building, and uh, creating a sense of psychological safety with your learners is a really important skill in simulation education. It's one that we've continued to grow and understand with time. And certainly in Jenny Rudolph et al's uh, important foundational paper, Establishing a Safe Container for Learning and Simulation, they argue that uh, one important thing to not miss is that psychological safety may not completely mitigate feelings of interpersonal risk. They say rather it tends to create a setting where learners feel safe enough to embrace being uncomfortable. And this is where we've maybe come into a little bit of nomenclature challenges in, in simulation theory when we've popularized this concept, because in our normal vocabulary, safety is often equivocated with comfort. And so really psychological safety is getting people to that tipping point where they're comfortable enough to take the dive, make the leap and take a risk either for their own education, for the benefit of a patient, or for their own learning by sharing their ideas because they think that the risk is worth it and that the risks are outweighed by the benefits of sharing that idea and that they have the support of the group behind them. Yeah. So what we've come to learn with time as well, though, is that psychological safety is a really complex beast and it is essentially being constantly formed, damaged, created and repaired uh, by factors within individuals, within groups and within organisations in a very complex dance. As individuals, we bring our own perspectives, history and experiences to the table when we come to any kind of situation where we might need to share an idea. And that means that we'll have our own personal tipping point for sharing those ideas uh, and our own concerns and fears about what might happen if we do, as well as good experiences that we might have had in the past that empower us to try it again. As groups, this also becomes more complicated, and the same individual might have a very different level of risk tolerance in different groups that they engage with within their community. So I might have a certain level of risk tolerance for sharing an idea within uh, my, a group of my medical colleagues, and I might have a very different sense of risk of sharing the same idea if I go out with some drinking buddies. So group dynamics form a powerful uh, feature of how we sense and how we react to psychological safety. And then thirdly, apart from individual and group dynamics, there's also the cultural history of the organization that we work in as it itself. Yeah. And so organizations can shape psychological safety by holding people accountable for their actions, by establishing values and ideas that they hold important to all of their employees, and by following through and making sure that they walk the talk of the of the ideas that they espouse. In addition to this, 
uh, Michaela Kolber et al. have talked about how psychological safety is actually not just built, yeah? We have to build, maintain, and repair it, yeah? We build psychological safety by being invitational, by being open, and by being clear about what we need from other people and what our expectations are and what our values are, yeah? When we build psychological safety, we aim to decrease ambiguity and uncertainty because few things make people more cautious than uncertainty and not being sure how to read the room or what's expected of them or what people are going to think of them. Yeah? We maintain psychological safety by following through on those things that we said we would do and the values we say we, we hold dear. Yeah? So by continually showing and demonstrating that we uh, care about other people within the simulation, that we value idea sharing and that we're actively listening to those ideas, we maintain psychological safety within our group and within our organization. And then finally, when breaches happen, when we damage psychological safety, because we're all human and we all will do this at some stage, we rebuild psychological safety by repairing it by actively acknowledging our mistakes, by exploring ways to get better, and by demonstrating that we've heard critique, acted on it, and want to receive more when the time is right. So I want you then to pause, because all of this makes sense from an educational perspective. But I think that these are equally important concepts to go through and think about when you're thinking about resuscitations, when you're thinking about the way that we work together in emergency departments or within hospitals in general. Because this can be a really overwhelming thing, yeah, particularly when we think about how it can be broken down into both individual, group, and organizational factors. So that can feel like this is so complex and challenging that it's impossible for us to help. But at the same time, if there are individual, group, and organizational contributors to psychological safety, it means that these, there are things that we can do as individuals and as groups and as organizations to make sure that other people feel psychological safe. Yeah. So if we're thinking in a resus, for example, we can build psychological safety as a team leader by inviting ideas, pausing and actively listening to those ideas and responding to them. Yeah. We can build psychological safety by being clear about what we're thinking by summarizing and recapping the patient and having a structure to our resource so that people feel un less uncertain. We can also preview what we think is going to happen in the next five or 10 minutes so that everybody has a shared mental model of where we're going. And by actively cutting down on uncertainty uh, and, hint and hints, we can actually become stronger as a team and more psychologically safe. As a team member, though, we can add to psychological safety as well by taking the risk to share ideas and thoughts and therefore not only sharing what that idea is, but lowering the tipping point for the next person along who can see that there was no negative impact on your idea sharing as well. So maybe your idea in a resuscitation isn't that life-changing or going to be that impactful, but maybe it will empower somebody else to speak up and say something that they've noticed and potentially really change the resuscitation. Similarly, within groups, if we work hard at being invitational, respectful to other teams, clear about what our shared goals and shared knowledge are, and what our goals for the patient are, and what our expectations of each other's contributions are, 
We can build a strong sense of psychological safety, even in teams who are rapidly converging and don't know each other. And then finally, as organizations, we can show that we've heard concerns from groups, that we've acted on feedback, and that we hold people accountable for breaching behavioral expectations. So that's psychological safety. And I want to move now to above the table negotiation, which is a really cool communication technique that I found very, very useful on the floor. So essentially, I learned about above the table negotiation from a co-debriefing paper. Yeah, because as co-debriefers, we often feel like if we're uh, debriefing with another colleague, we can sometimes come to the table feeling like we have to psychically recognize what the other person is thinking, wants to talk about, and that if we put that out there, we're somehow damaging the debrief. Yeah. And the concept of above the table negotiation is essentially very simple. It's saying that it's okay to talk about the conversation itself on out loud and negotiate actively with absolute clarity where you think things should be going. So for example, if I was debriefing with Vic, rather than giving an ambiguous kind of look like this, which could mean anything according to Vic, right? Instead, I'm going to be very clear and explicit and above the table by saying, hey, Vic, I'm noticing that you look like you have something to say. Are you happy to take the floor from here? No? Can you see how one is incredibly ambiguous and therefore risky and the other one is clear and explicit? Or in other words, above the table negotiation can be considered to be essentially about making the implicit explicit. Yeah. And this is a really important concept to think about in healthcare because the reality is that we are heavily socialized to hide our thought processes because there's few things more risky or, or, um, to our sense of personal, personal safety and self-esteem than exposing our thoughts. Yeah? So we often use ambiguous language or avoid clarity, specifically to give us some wiggle room in the conversation. Yeah? It's unconscious, but we do it all the time. But this introduces risk. It introduces risks for patients in particular, and it introduces risks for us misunderstanding each other and damaging the connections that we need to build to be a successful healthcare team. Yeah? Let me give you a clinical example. If I'm doing a walk around, ward round with my colleagues and we're talking about each patient and I say, has anyone done a lactate? That could be interpreted in a couple of ways. It could mean that I'm thinking this patient has ventral toxicity and we need to tone things down. And so I want a gas to prove that. Alternatively, it could mean I think this patient has sepsis. And therefore, I think we need to change our treatment strategy and we need to check whether that's the case and give antibiotics. So two hugely different potential interpretations that will have significant impact on a patient. Yeah. And so an above the table example of the same thought process would be saying, has anyone taken a lactate? Because I think this kid has salbutamol toxicity and we might need to tone things down rather than flogging them with Ventolin right now. Yeah. The unfortunate side effect of using implicit communication more often or ambiguous or under the table communication is that we do a secondary cultural signal as well, which is that we can potentially send the signal that there is shame involved in not knowing what I'm talking about. Yeah? So if I say, 
has anyone done a lactate? And you don't know what I'm talking about or don't know what I mean. By not bothering to share my thought processes with clarity, I've potentially sent a signal to you that this knowledge is so obvious that you should feel ashamed for not knowing it. And that, again, introduces significant patient risk. So that's above-the-table negotiation, and it's a really useful tool. The last one I want to talk about is kind of my favorite, which is this idea of cultural compression. And cultural compression, I'm going to explain with a story because it's the way that just sits well with me. So when I was about four years old, I lived in a small country town, and a couple of houses down from me lived my best friend in the world. It was a kid called Adam. You know? And to be honest, I don't remember much about Adam. I was four years old at the time. Uh, but I do remember with absolute clarity that Adam had He-Man. And that is high social capital indeed when you're four years old. So I used to spend a fair amount of time at Adam's house and we used to spend a fair amount of time playing with He-Man. But Adam also had a little sister. And his little sister liked to play with My Little Pony. And one day, everybody but me walked out of the lounge room and all the toys were on the ground. And I noticed this beautiful My Little Pony. And with nobody else around, there was a brush nearby, so I picked her up and started combing her hair. And then Adam's mum walked in, and I kid you not, she could have not have looked more horrified to me than if I had been wearing her dresses and putting on her makeup right then and there. And what followed on from that was about good five minutes of very well-intentioned, heavy ribbing about everybody look at Ben, he's playing with a My Little Pony. Would he like a My Little Pony? Right, 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 you get the picture, right? But the thing with that moment, even though it was just a light bit of fun, is that I think I learned three important things. The first thing I learned is that boys play with He-Man and girls play with My Little Pony. And I'd grown up in a family with two older brothers and one baby sister. So the idea of gendered toys and only being allowed to play with certain things was a new concept to me. The second thing I think I learned is that boys are different to girls. There are certain things that boys are allowed to do and certain things that girls are allowed to do. And in that moment, I was committing what was a small taboo in our culture, which is I was showing a feminine trait, which is not considered acceptable for boys. The third thing I think I learned in that moment was potentially that boys are better than girls. Because the person who was criticizing me for showing a feminine trait was a woman herself. And so that must mean that being a man was therefore better than being a woman. Because this was a woman who was criticizing me for being like her. So this moment to me is a moment of cultural compression which Eve Purdy describes as a moment in time when the signaled values and beliefs of a profession are particularly strong. Yeah? So in that moment, I was coming up against and understanding the boundaries of acceptable behavior for a kid of my age in that culture. And that is cultural compression. What we've learned from Eve and her colleagues is that cultural compression occurs in a lot of different moments and simulation in particular is a hotbed for cultural signaling. We often use sim, whether it's conscious or not, to transmit clear values about who we are as a group of people 
about who, what we think about other groups or organizations uh, within our service. Um, and we play out and imitate and mimic our, sometimes our fears and anxieties about worst case scenarios or the way we engage with parents. And I think one, the thing that's really impacted me about this concept is that once you start seeing cultural compression, you start seeing it everywhere, right? So if you were looking at, so for me, it's things like, why do all my smartphones and automated cleaning devices come pre-programmed with smiling, obedient female voices? Yeah. It's done because research shows that people are more comfortable with that, but it also sends a clear signal of what we expect from women and what we expect from men in our society. And there are moments in our workplace, I think, that are hotbeds for cultural compression as well. Things like handover, the way we engage and talk about our colleagues and our patients in the fishbowl or in the emergency department. I think it's an important thing to understand because I think that there are often times when we're sending the wrong cultural signal in a way that can be damaging to ourselves and damaging to our patients. If you think about handover for, in particular, there will often be times where we make jokes, degrade other services, or talk about patients, parents, and their families in ways that they'd be pretty horrified to hear that we talk about. And I think we do this for a couple of reasons. The first law of house of God, for example, is the patient is the one with the disease. And when we criticize patients and families, for example, it actually creates a sense of separation between us and them. And I think potentially as a culture that helps us deal with what we see on a day-to-day basis because we tell ourselves that we're different and we're not going to experience the same level of tragedy that some of the families we work with come to. But this is a really maladaptive response. Because what we are essentially doing is othering those people and we're sending a clear signal that we're better than them. And if we're better than them, that separates us and it makes it actually harder to form real and meaningful connections with them on the floor. It makes it harder for me to teach that it's important to listen to and hear parental concerns in paediatric emergency if we're sending a cultural signal that those people should be mocked. And so I think it's worth us all reflecting on the moments and opportunities we have for cultural signaling within our service and what we do on the floor and within our educational interventions as well and how we transmit our values and how we transmit values and thoughts about what we think about other people within our service, whether it's the people we're paid to look after or the people that we need to help us look after patients better. So those are the three main concepts that I want to explore with you today. Psychological safety, above the table negotiation, and cultural compression. And I think each in different ways can help us become better healthcare educators, but also more importantly, I think it can help us professionally as well. Thanks for your time. You're listening to Simulcast, a podcast about healthcare simulation.